We are in Colossians 1 again, verses 9 through 12. If you have a Bible, you can open there. There should be an outline in your bulletin and printed messages at both exits. You can grab one either now or later if you like. And um, the printed messages are on the church website uh, as well and the audio messages. We're um, starting to put the um, printed and audio messages on a website called sermonaudio.com. And uh, they're not all up there, just a few of them so far. But anyway, you can go on there and see, um, see that resource as well. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12. Paul writes, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might or literally the might of his glory for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in, and it should read, the light, because the article is in the Greek text to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. One thing I really love about kids is their evident desire to grow. When you get around kids, it's obvious that they just want to stand up tall and show you how tall they are and how much they've grown. Ray Steadman uh, used to be a pastor. He's with the Lord now, but he said he one time asked a boy how old he was, and the boy replied really quickly, I'm 12 going on 13, soon to be 14. <laughs> he wanted to grow. And, uh, you know, I think every parent here knows you have a growth chart in home somewhere, maybe inside a closet door, and every so often you get the kids out and you measure, and when they see that they've grown a half inch or an inch, boy, they are so excited about their own progress, and they just beam with delight. I remember an incident once when I was just a boy, and we went to Disneyland, and, you know, they have the miniature cars, and there's a sign. You have to be so tall to drive these cars. And I felt just a little short, and I was so disappointed. But, of course, finally I reached that goal. But then that only whet my appetite. I wanted to grow up and get my license and turn 16 so I could drive a real car. But every, every child wants to grow. And as a parent... It always brings you great joy when your kids grow up to the point where they, uh, they learn what pleases you and they want to do it because they love you. You know, you come in the door and, and your little one says, Daddy, I help Mommy make your favorite cookies. And your heart just swells up to say, wow, that's neat. Or, you know, Daddy, I knew you didn't feel well, so I made you this card. And there's a bunch of scribbles, and, you know, you can't really make it out. But it just thrills your heart to see that they're trying to please you. Have you ever thought about what spiritual growth looks like? 
spiritual growth? You say, well, can you measure it by how often you go to church or uh, how many ministries you're involved in or how much you give? Well, those probably aren't the best measurements. Maybe those have some bearing, but at the heart of spiritual growth is really learning how God wants us to live as his children so that out of a heart of love for him, because we want to please him, we live that way. We we say, this is what pleases the Father, and I want to do that because he gave his own son for me on the cross. And in Paul's prayer for these new Colossian believers, he shows us what spiritual growth looks like, that spiritual growth means growing to know how God wants us to live so that we, we seek to please him in all things. And I'm going to approach our text as a picture of spiritual growth, but don't overlook the fact that this is, after all, a prayer. It's a prayer. And it shows us how Paul is praying for these new believers. Most of them he did not know personally. He had not yet visited Colossae. And there are a number of other recorded prayers of Paul in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Philippians 1, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you study those prayers, you can learn how to pray for your family, for uh, your friends, for yourself, for other believers. Uh, Paul here says that he and Timothy had not ceased to pray. Uh, He obviously doesn't mean they prayed 24-7. He just means often they were on his mind and he and Timothy just said, let's pray for the Colossians. And You know, we don't have to be left in the dark to say, I wonder what he prayed, because he tells us here what he prayed. And so you can use this prayer and the other prayers of Paul as a model and um, pray these things for others. Now, his prayer here actually begins up in verse 3 that we looked at last time, down through verse 8. And we saw there that he thanks God for the uh, new believers in Colossae, for their faith in Christ Jesus for their love for all the saints, for the hope that was laid up for them in heaven. And now he tells them his request, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they'll walk in a manner worthy of him, seeking to please him in every way. And then he lists four things that please the Lord. And in the Greek text, it's pretty obvious because they are four participles that are parallel. And so you can see these four ways to please the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with God's power so that we uh, steadfastly and patiently endure trials, and then joyfully giving thanks to the Father for his great salvation. So even though this is a prayer and we could go on at it in that direction, I'm going to treat it as a snapshot of spiritual growth, what spiritual growth looks like. And the first aspect of it is that spiritual growth means uh, growing to know how God wants us to live. That's in verse 9. For this reason, he says also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now that prayer, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, 
in this context is not talking about that they would understand, should I take the new job or shouldn't I? Or should I move to another city or not? Or should I marry this person or not? It's not that sense of God's will, but rather he's talking about God's moral will, how God's word tells us that we should live. When he talks about being filled with the knowledge of God's will, it's referring to um, being controlled by that knowledge uh, so that every word, first every thought, then every word, every deed is under the control of this is how God would have me to live as revealed in his word of truth. And since God's moral will is a reflection of his holy character, Paul's prayer here really amounts to nothing less than saying that his prayer is that we would be conformed to God, that we would become like God and know God as he is revealed in his word. Now, these false teachers who had infiltrated the Colossian church probably were emphasizing how their teaching is going to bring you something that uh, Epaphras' teaching lacked, and so their teaching would help to fill you. And so you, you notice that Paul emphasizes the theme of fullness here. Uh, he does it by re- repeatedly using the words all and every. Notice in verse 9, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, to please him in all respects. Uh, Verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. Verse 11, strengthened with all uh, power. And and then, same verse 11, uh, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And I think what Paul is driving at is he wants us, he wants his original readers and us to realize that everything we need spiritually is in Jesus Christ. And if we have Christ, we have it. We may not have uncovered the treasure. We may not have understood how to take it and apply it to our specific situation. But his point is, you don't need to go anywhere else. If you have Christ, don't follow after this and that fad that says, oh, this will help this and this will give you this fulfillment. No, no, no. It's in Christ. So seek Christ. Go to him. He is our all in all. Now, Paul modifies this true wisdom of God's, or true knowledge of God's will with two words, spiritual wisdom and understanding. First of all, the knowledge of how God wants us to live in requires spiritual wisdom. And that word spiritual is emphatic and it governs both words, spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding. Uh, Obviously, it means they come from God's spirit. He's the one who reveals to us true spiritual wisdom and understanding. And uh, Paul is, again, taking a swipe at the false teachers who were promoting worldly wisdom and understanding, as we'll see in chapter 2. In the Old Testament, wisdom, as you know, there's a whole section of books called wisdom literature, but maybe it is epitomized in the book of Proverbs. And Often, Proverbs and other uh, Old Testament books couple these two words, wisdom and understanding. In Proverbs 9.10, for example, it says, The fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The main idea behind the Hebrew concept of wisdom is skill. Uh, Back in the book of Exodus, when God tells Moses to find men to build the tabernacle, he, he describes them as wise men. And the sense in which they were wise is that they were able to take the raw elements that the people brought, the gold, the silver, the tapestries, the um, various materials, and they were able to uh, construct a beautiful object, the tabernacle. And so just as a skilled carpenter can take a rough bunch of lumber that we would look at and go, yeah, there's a pile of firewood, but they can take it. And with their skill, they shape it according to a plan, and the finished product is a beautiful piece of furniture. Well, so the wise person is able to take all the rough elements that come at us in life, and according to God's plan and his word, uh, fit them together into a beautiful life product that will bring glory not to the person, but to the architect, to the Lord, the builder of all of us so that our lives would display his glory. So the knowledge of how God wants us to live requires that spiritual skill, that wisdom that we discover in his word. Also, the knowledge of how God wants us to live then requires spiritual understanding. And those terms are somewhat overlapping and and synonymous, but there may be a subtle nuance of difference in this sense Wisdom refers to understanding or knowing how God's word commands us to live. The word understanding is more the insight, the perception, uh, the ability to discern between things. And so understanding is to take the various pieces of wisdom and, and fit them together in application to a particular situation or problem in life. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.7, Paul has just used three analogies, uh, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And then he tells Timothy this, 2 Timothy 2.7, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you, and then here's the word, understanding in everything. And so what he's saying is, Timothy, if you'll think about and and mentally grasp these three analogies I've given you, with the Lord's help, you'll be able to take them and apply them in your ministry in specific situations so that your ministry will bring honor and glory to the Lord. Uh, Writing back in the early part of the 20th century, a a godly Anglican bishop by the name of uh, Hanley Moole, H.C.G. Moole, he warned against what he called in his day an untheological devotion, or he also called it a sentimental religion, which thought that it could be healthy on a minimum of reasoned doctrine. In other words, he saw even way back in the early 20th century in England, people who were kind of spiritual light. They were fluffed up with emotion and uh, all kinds of superficial things, but they didn't go deep in doctrine. And he pointed out that such people are easily swayed 
by current fashions of thought or by attractive personalities. I believe that that problem has magnified in our own day. Uh, D.A. Carson, who um, lives now, is, is a contemporary of ours, he observed that in the Western church, he said, the knowledge of God declines while our fascination with techniques and fads increases. And I think he's right. Hardly a week goes by, I don't get some advertisement to go to a pastor's conference or to buy a book or something that's going to tell me how I can employ these techniques and have a successful church. And I guarantee if you go to the conferences, it isn't about how you can be more in prayer and in the word. (laughs) That's not the technique. It's some latest gimmick that comes in from the world and proven results that gets you to grow your church, that kind of thing. And uh, those things, as I say, come from the world. Spiritual understanding is the ability to take the word of God and the wisdom that the word of God has and bring it down into a current situation and apply it uh, in a way that goes against the ungodly trends of our time. Now, the huge question then is, well, how does a person become filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Let me illustrate it this way. When I was in the Coast Guard, we would sometimes be off the coast of Long Beach, California, and navigating in pea soup fog. You couldn't see from here to the wall back there. I mean, it was dense. What do you do in those times? Well, you rely on two things. Number one, we had radar. And the radar was just a little screen, and you would see something on the screen as a dark object, and you would go, there's a ship or a boat or something out there, and you couldn't see it. You just looked at the radar and went, you know, it's out there somewhere, and it was kind of an eerie feeling. And the second thing you would do is you would send a man out to stand in the cold fog on the bow. And uh, sometimes you couldn't even see him on the bow because the bow was a little further than here to that wall. Uh, But he had a headset on. And from his vantage point, once in a while, he would talk to the guy on the bridge and say, it's over there, two o'clock to the right, you know, and we'd look and go, oh, wow, there's a big ship over there. And we would steer away from it. So those two things would keep us navigating safely in the fog. Well, two things have helped me to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding so that my life doesn't run aground on the the moral fog that we're all navigating in in this world. The first is prayerfully to read and meditate on the Word of God. That is our standard, the Word of God. And by just reading the Bible over and over and over and thinking about what it says and asking God for understanding, I'm able to see the blips on the radar screen. It's like the radar. And you maybe don't see it in the world, but you can go, yep, it's in the Word. It's in the Word. And that's a dangerous wind of doctrine that's blowing over there. Or, uh, you know, there's another reef over there you're going to run aground on if you go that direction. And the Word of God reveals to us the truth of God to help us navigate. It also shows us how people in the past have either done well by obeying the word or in many cases how they have 
messed up their lives by disobeying the word of God, and so it gives us those warnings. Uh, For example, I think every man here, when I mention this text, should immediately know what it is. And if you don't, you're not sufficiently in the word. Proverbs chapter 7. You guys know that text? You should. You should immediately think, oh yeah. It's a story of a young man. And he foolishly goes near the house of the loose woman. That's his mistake. He goes near the corner where she lives. Sure enough, she comes out and entices him. Her husband is away and she invites him in and pretty soon he's engaged in immorality. And here's the way Proverbs 7.23 describes his succumbing to her enticement. As a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. That picture, guys, ought to keep you away from the corner. And that's the way to resist. Don't go near the corner. She lives down the street. And if you steer away from the corner, you won't end up in her bedroom. So the word. The second way I've been helped is by reading church history and Christian biographies. And apart from the Bible, I think reading Christian biographies has helped me to grow more than any other source. Uh, God's Word is like the radar. Christian biographies and and church history is like the guy out on the bridge. Now, I mean on the bow. You don't trust the guy on the bow as your only source because you're in this piece of fog. But sometimes... He can see something from a different perspective to help you go back to the radar and go, oh, yeah, I missed that. There it is right there. And sometimes you miss things in the word, but reading something in church history alerts you and you go, oh, wow, you know, look what happened back then. And it drives you back to the word for guidance. Um, And and sometimes it just uh, helps you understand what's in the word. And so by reading what God's people have faced down through the centuries, then either how they succeeded or failed, you gain insight into our times. For example, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book called The Puritans, Their Origins and Successors. I read that book back in the late 1980s, and uh, it's the first time I'd ever heard of Sandemanianism. Any of you ever heard of Sandemanianism? I didn't think so, probably not, unless you've read that book. Uh, It's an error that came about through a man named Robert Sandeman back in the 1700s. And as soon as I read the chapter, I instantly realized that's exactly the same error that John MacArthur is confronting in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and his later book, Faith Works, namely, the view that saving faith just means giving mental assent to the gospel without repentance in your life. And it's a watered-down gospel, an easy believism. Yeah, just, just believe in Jesus, and that's all, and you can go on living like you're living. And that's what Robert Sandeman was teaching, and that's what many in our day, sadly, many from my seminary are teaching. And that book just made me like the radar uh, or like the guy on the bridge, say, look at your, your Bible again. It's right there. 
And I went, yep, it is. Um, I also have read twice now the two-volume biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones by Ian Murray. And again, that has helped me greatly because Lloyd-Jones just had an uncanny ability to discern his time and apply the word to it and to stand firm through all the winds of doctrine that were blowing. And by reading that, I can extrapolate it another 50 years into our time and understand uh, again how to navigate in the foggy times that we live in. So as we grow then in the knowledge of how God wants us to live, the result is, Paul says, we will walk worthily of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. And that's the second point, that spiritual growth, first of all, is understanding how God wants us to live from his word. But then it means, secondly, walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord as we seek to please him in all things. Uh, The knowledge of God's will, in other words, gets translated into a worthy walk. And if your Bible knowledge isn't leading to godly living, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. The point of Bible knowledge of doctrine is to be godly living. That's why God gave it to us. And as I've pointed out many times, and I got this from Lloyd-Jones, God didn't write these epistles through the apostle to theologians. He, He wrote these to people. Many of them were slaves. Many of them were illiterate. They were out there in these new churches in a very pagan world. And, and these letters, though deep in theology, are practical to help people live a godly life. And the main reason you should want to live a godly life is not so that you'll have a happier marriage or a happier time at jo- on the job or a more successful financial life or whatever, although all those things happen, they inevitably happen. But the main motive for why you should want to live a godly life is to please and glorify the Lord who gave himself on the cross for you. That's the motive. Now, before we look at the four ways that Paul says we can please the Lord, let me point out two things. First of all, this is a walk. If you have a translation that doesn't read walk, trade it in and get a translation that translates it walk worthily. Uh, Some of the modern translations try to help you out by uh, making the word walk something other than walk. A walk is a very graphic picture. It is a slow, step-by-step movement in a deliberate direction. You're walking to somewhere. And so a spiritual walk is that. It is not spectacular. Um, you're not going to get there by some dramatic spiritual experience or by a quick fix. But if you make a deliberate effort to go in a deliberate direction and you keep at it day by day by day by day, you'll get there. That's a spiritual walk. And that's what Paul's talking about here, to walk worthy of the Lord. And that's the second thing. It's a walk worthy of the Lord. Uh, Dr. Carson, in a book on this prayer, Uh, D.A. Carson, points out that this probably meant more in the first century because 
many of the cultures that Paul wrote to were what we call shame-based cultures. Muslim cultures today are still largely shame-based, which is why it is so hard to reach Muslim young people, because when they convert to Christianity, they shame their, their father. And that's a huge deal. It's really a big deal. You don't want to shame your family. Because if one of the father's kids becomes a Christian, all the men in the village laugh that man to scorn. Ha! Your kid became an infidel. He is, he's now a, a Christian and doesn't believe in Allah. And so that's a, a huge deal in those cultures, which is why it's so difficult to reach Muslim people. But Paul here is urging these new Christians, live in a way that doesn't shame your father. Live in a way that brings honor to the God who gave his son for you on the cross to rescue you from Satan's domain of darkness, which we'll look at next time. So in every situation, we should ask, what sort of speech and what sort of action is going to bring honor to my father, to my heavenly father, the Lord? And what would please him the most? Paul here, and this isn't comprehensive, but here he spells out four ways we can live to please the Lord. First of all, we please the Lord, Paul says, when we bear fruit in every good work. Fruit is what God accomplishes through us as we rely on him. It's what Jesus taught in John 15 in the story or parable of the vine and the branches. He said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And so good works are like the grapes. They are the outflowing of the life of God through the branch, uh, out there in the vine, through the branch to uh, produce the grapes, the fruit. And we could go into a lot more detail, which I don't have time to do, but just to uh, generalize, fruit consists of Christ-like character, fruit of the Spirit, Christ-like conduct, behavior that obeys the Lord, and Christ-like converts as we share Christ with others and see others coming to faith. The Bible is clear on this, and we need to be clear as well. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But the kind of faith that saves is never uh, a dead end. It's never alone. It always results in good works, in fruit. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 proves that. The second way we please the Lord is when we increase in the knowledge of God. And that phrase could mean two things based on the Greek um, preposition there. It could mean, and I think it probably does mean, that we are growing to know God better. Or it could mean that we are growing by knowing God better. But either way, there's the idea that we need to know God himself. And since God is an infinite being, to know him is an infinitely long process. All through eternity, we will be discovering the glory of who God is. But to bring it down to where we live, as a parent, 
it, it always pleases me when my children want to spend time with me so they can get to know me better. And uh, that was especially true when they were teenagers. You know, bowled me over. You really want to spend time with me, huh? But, uh, you know, that, that's just a delight to any father, that they want to spend the time with dad because they want to get to know you better. And we please God when we desire to spend time with him in his word and in prayer so we can know him better. Now, the knowledge of God in verse 10 is inseparably connected with the knowledge of his will in verse 9 and obedience to that will, walking worthily of him, pleasing him, bearing fruit in verse 10. Uh, all that comes together in John fourteen twenty one, where Jesus said this, He who has my commandments, that's a knowledge of his will, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that's living and walking in a manner worthy of him, is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And so Jesus is saying there, if you want to get to know him better, obey him. Obey him. You can see that principle in human relationships. Have you ever had the experience of someone you just met and you don't know very well starts telling you all the intimate details of their life? And it makes you uncomfortable. You know, you, you think, I don't even know this person. And, and normally, people don't do that. Why? Because you want to know that the person you're going to open your heart to is trustworthy. And if they are, you'll open up. And if they deal rightly with that info, you might open up a little more. It, it's just a principle of relationships. And the, when the Lord sees that we love him and we're trustworthy because we're seeking to obey him, he says he'll disclose himself to us. We'll see more and more of who he is through his word. So it pleases God then when we bear fruit and when we grow to know him better through his word. Thirdly, we please the Lord when we're strengthened with his power to be steadfast and patient. Strengthened with all power. Uh, it's a present participle and it points to the fact that we ha need a continual infusion of God's strength or power. All power points to the fact it's an unlimited supply. You can never drain it. When it says according to his glorious might, the Greek text literally is according to the might of his glory. God's glory is the outward manifestation of his splendor or his inherent majesty. And often in the Old Testament, it's called the Shekinah. It, it was a bright light. Sometimes in a bright cloud, sometimes a flash of light, lightning or lightning and thunder. Uh, but whenever anyone encountered the glory of God, you can be assured they weren't still standing. <laughs> they fell on their faces and, and just went, whoa, you know, I am in the presence of God. And it was a frightening experience. In the New Testament... We see God's glory in Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes that glory was veiled, but at other times it was evident. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were enveloped by the cloud, and they saw Jesus in bright raiment like the sun shining, and 
It, it was a magnificent display of his glory. Uh, they saw it when he performed miracles. And they realized, whoa, this is no man. Who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? That was a flash of his glory. Um, we see it in the garden when the soldiers come up to Jesus and, and he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am. And they all fall backward. They, they had a flash of his glory. We see it on the cross when the sky is darkened and the earth quakes. And, of course, we see it in the empty tomb when the angels are there. Um, the Apostle Paul experienced his glory when he was still known as Saul of Tarsus. And he was belligerently going to Damascus to persecute the church. And there was that blinding flash of light that knocked him to the ground and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Um, now, Paul here says, we please the Lord when we are strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory. Now, when you read that, and I had to meditate on it a long time this week, when you read that, you have to ask yourself the question, do I experience that? Do you? Do I? Now, before you panic... And say, no way. Keep reading. Keep reading. Because before you answer that question, you might keep reading. Uh, you know, if I were experiencing God's mighty power, then I'd see people miraculously healed. I could go up to the hospital and put them out of business, healing every patient in there. Uh, I could do miracles. You know, I, I could uh, uh, command demons and they would flee. I mean, I could go on the NAU campus and preach and 3,000 would fall on their faces and say, what must I do to be saved? And they would repent and we would baptize them. And, you know, all of these things you read about in the Bible say, there's the mighty power of God. Keep reading. He prays that you might be strengthened with all power According to the might of his glory, here's why. For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Huh? <laughs> Does it occur to you, you don't need steadfastness and patience if you can see miraculous deliverance to every problem you have instantly. You don't need it then. When do you need steadfastness and patience? When you're suffering and there's no relief in sight. That's what steadfastness and patience are all about. Steadfastness looks to endurance in trials. Patience is more endurance of difficult people. Some of you have some of those in your life, right? You have either trials or you have difficult people or probably most of us have both in our lives. Well, Paul is saying here when you can steadfastly, patiently, and the word joyously that follows that could refer back to steadfastness and patience or ahead to giving thanks. But um, either way, Paul is saying when you bear up 
with difficult circumstances or difficult people with joy in the Lord because of his great salvation. We'll see that in verses 13 and 14. It's in verse 12 as well. Um, Then that is a demonstration of the mighty power of God at work in your life. That's it. That is the power of God. And so, like Paul, you know, he cries out that God would deliver him from his thorn in the flesh. And God says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in your weakness. Paul knew that. So to please the Lord, we please him when we bear fruit. We please him when we grow to know him better. We please him when we experience his power as seen in being steadfast and patient in our trials. And then finally, we please the Lord when we joyously give thanks to him for his great salvation. He continues there in in the end of verse 11, verse 12, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And as I say, joyously could go with what's before or with what's after. But either way, the point is when we joyously, steadfastly, patiently endure trials, we glorify the Lord. And here's why. We live in a world of grumblers. You know that. If you have a job, you go to school, you're around unbelievers. What is the fare of the day? Grumble, grumble, grumble. You know, grumble about work, grumble about the boss, grumble about the low pay, grumble about the country, grumble about whatever. We just live in a world of grumblers. There wouldn't hardly be any news if there weren't grumbling. You know, we're all grumble, grumble. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that when you, when you don't complain or grumble but give thanks, you're going to stand out like a light in the darkness. You will. You'll be like a light in the darkness. Now, how do you develop then that joyous, thankful attitude in the midst of difficult problems or difficult people? Well, Paul's answer here is by setting your mind on the fact that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And Paul is picturing there the division of the land of Canaan. When Israel conquered Canaan, they divided up the land according to Lot, and different tribes had different portions of the land. And, of course, within those tribes, individuals had their own portion. And um, the picture here is the Father has given his people an inheritance, not a physical piece of geography, the land, but he has given us Christ and all the riches we have in him. And individually, he has gifted us differently. I may live on this parcel, you on that parcel, but they're all for the common good. And so we all share the common salvation in Christ, but then we all, each of us, have individually different gifts in Christ to be employed to build one another up. And so we should pass that spiritual heritage down to our children and our grandchildren So that as they see the reality of Christ in us, especially as we go through trials, trusting him with joy in the Lord, they'll want the same thing. 
And so they will dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness, as Psalm 37 puts it. But that's how we please the Lord, those four ways. You know, there used to be, when my kids were growing up, a lot of different ways I could tell my kids were growing. One, of course, I said was the growth chart. And we had one where you'd measure their height every so often, and, you know, they'd get excited to see how they were growing. Another, I'd look down and I could see that their pant legs were kind of getting shorter on their uh, creeping up their sock line. Uh, Another was, you know, Dad, my shoes are too tight. And you're going, oh, man, another trip to the shoe store. Another one, especially with my son as he got to be a teenager, was he started eating as much as I eat, and then he would ask for seconds, and you're going, wow, you know, something's feeding, that food is going somewhere, and it's going into growth, and um, if you're like I am, the parent of adult children, you look back and you say, man, that all happened too fast, because I see some of you guys that have younger kids, and I just think, oh, shoot, my kids all grew up too quickly, and, you know, I got grandkids I can hug, but I, uh, I really miss having kids that are growing up in the home. That was a blessing. Well, how can you tell if you're growing spiritually? Well, a lot of ways. Paul here shows, though, you're growing spiritually if you're learning more and more through God's Word how He wants you to live And he says, you're growing spiritually if, as God's child, you're seeking to live as he wants you to because you want to please him, your loving Heavenly Father, who has given you all the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's bow before him. Dear Father, thank you for this portion of your word that is so rich, so much more that could have been said, but I pray, Lord, we'd all be digging for treasure daily in your word and just savoring the nuggets of truth and love and grace that your word displays to us. I would ask, Lord, if any are here who do not have the joy of salvation, that they would see that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of sin for all who will come to him, that he invites each one, come unto me, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, and that there is rest for every weary soul in Christ. I pray, Lord, if any of your saints have lost the joy of salvation because they're burdened down with the cares of this world, that you would redirect them again to the glory of Christ and all that he is, that they would access those riches in him and that in their weakness they would be strong in you. And all of that to the praise of the glory of your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.